Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, the first podcast to focus on the political side of pharmacy. Here's your host, Eric Geyer. Welcome, Political Pharmacist Podcast listeners. I'm your host, Eric Geyer, and today with me I have Aaron L. Albert. Aaron's a probably the most educated pharmacist I've I've had on the podcast to date. She got her BS in pharmacy at Butler University and her PharmD at Shenandoah University. She also has an MBA in marketing from Concordia University in Wisconsin and a JD from Indiana University. That's a lot of school, Erin. How did you do that? (laughs) Well, Eric, thanks for having me on the show, first and foremost. I am not a learner. It's not in my top five on StrengthsFinder, believe it or not. And I thought every time I went to school, I was done with school. Like I walked away with my BS in pharmacy. I'm like, yay, I'm never going to school again. (laughs) And then I went back and got a MBA. And then I was like, yay, I'm really done with school now. And then everybody was graduating with a PharmD. So went back and got my PharmD. And actually during my PharmD rotations, I had a law rotation and I worked with general counsel at a small pharmaceutical company that I was working at in my full-time day job at the time. And I was fascinated by how the general counsel had his hands in everything, you know, like the building specs all the way through to what weird laws are coming up in California. And can you monitor what they do? Cause they tend to do weird stuff first in terms of their law to here's yeah. what's going on at the federal level. So that whole rotation experience really left me wanting to know more about law. And I'm also an entrepreneur and I like to write. So there were a lot of different reasons why I wanted to go to law school. And on top of all of that, the Affordable Care Act was rolling out at the time. So I just decided for a myriad of reasons to go back to law school not with the intent of working at a quote-unquote traditional law firm or anything like that, but to better understand the law from different points of view, from healthcare's point of view, from a writer and an intellectual property generator's point of view, and from an entrepreneur's point of view. So every reason for law school uh, that I went back for has really served me well and it's less about the education and more about the knowledge that I've gained from those experiences. Yeah, that's quite a bit. I've, I've thought about it myself. And I always said if I couldn't be a pharmacist, I'd be a lawyer. I guess that's why I have a, a political pharmacist podcast. So I guess that fits. Um, so you told us about yourself. That's awesome. That's I can't believe how much school that is. I also saw you, you've written several books. Can you? Uh, how many was it? And can you give us some names of them for people who might be listening? I don't have them all memorized anymore, Eric. Um, I have over a dozen (laughs) books that I've published. Most of them are in nonfiction. And for me, when I'm writing a book, I always look at intersections. And what I mean by that is I am very fascinated by hybrid career professionals, meaning um, entrepreneurs, but maybe entrepreneurs like you and me that are doing things like on the side you know, a lot of the terminology people use now are side hustles. Um, The concept of being multi-patient or having a lot of different careers going on at the same time. I wrote a book about that. Also wrote a book about hybrid entrepreneurship and full-time work. It was called Plan C, the full-time employee and part-time entrepreneur, where I looked at 
the people in different stages of developing their businesses and their intent with developing those businesses, meaning are you a full-time employee who wants to start a side hustle and always keep it as a side hustle? Or are you starting a business on the side on top of your day job with the intent to get away from the day job and then move into full-time entrepreneurship? And there were answers all over the board. And to me, I found that very fascinating. And I, I see that as a trend these days too, that even retirees, you know, there's this term retirepreneurship, that people at, at retirement, you know, with the traditional quote unquote, you know, gold watch and 30 years and at a company, they're leaving and retiring, but then they actually start their own business. So it's always those weird and interesting intersections that I'm interested in writing and publishing about. Um, the other area or genre that I've written and published in are a series of children's books to get girls and boys excited about STEM and STEM careers, but at a very early age. So the age target market for that STEM princess series that I call it is ages five to nine. So when I was studying that kind of concept originally, I learned that most girls in particular are either in or out on STEM very early, like by middle school, many of them are checked out. And so I wanted to start a children's book series to get girls engaged at a very young age to keep them interested um, so they don't check out at middle school and high school into STEM careers because that fits into what we're going to talk about today, the new report that I have out about women leadership in healthcare and life sciences and pharmacy, in that women um, don't tend to choose STEM traditionally, although we're finally moving that Titanic around. But what I love about STEM careers for women is it's very egalitarian, meaning that women and men tend to make similar salaries once they are in those STEM fields. But there's just a paucity of women in some areas of STEM, like physics, for example, that we've got to change that. Um, we need a better gender balance when it comes to a lot of different careers in STEM. So that's kind yeah. of what I write about a lot um, at the big picture level. I've not done a lot of fiction and fiction scares me to death. So I probably <laughs> won't go there for right now, although I, I would like to try it someday, but I'm not quite mentally there yet. Yeah, it takes a little different ball game when you're dealing with facts and, you know, the kind of the pharmacy mindset, if you will, to do something like that. But yeah, you kind of touched on it. And part of the reason I wanted you on here today. So my wife is actually a chemist. And so she's in that STEM realm. And when it comes to chemistry, I might be a pharmacist, but she's got me beat. I'm more of the biology end, if you will. But you did a report, and this is the reason why I invited you on here, uh, to kind of show that pharmacy really isn't as egalitarian or equal in pay as it was lauded by many and multiple news outlets. Uh, can you kind of talk about what you found in your research? Yeah. So thank you again for the opportunity to kind of show the light spotlight on this. And I have been tracking kind of the intersection between gender and healthcare, but healthcare C-suites. And when I say C-suite, I mean CEO. I'm not looking at, you know, the next tier down. I'm not looking at vice presidents or anything like that. I want to go straight to the top. And I've always, <laughs> since about 2015, been monitoring different sectors within healthcare, life sciences, and pharma 
who's really running these organizations. And so it's pretty easy to determine a lot of that information because most of the companies are publicly traded. And it's very easy to discern, you know, who's literally at the helms of organizations. And what I found this particular fall for the first time, and I have been tracking it somewhat based upon some of the data out by the government, um, I've always been told that one of the greatest things about pharmacy is it's one of the most egalitarian professions, right? So women oh, and yeah. men, I hear that all the time. yeah, women and men go to pharmacy school and they may basically make the same salary out of the gate. So I was like, oh, cool. When I went to pharmacy school, I was like, yeah, that's awesome. That's one of the great things about our profession. Yeah. I, yeah. I even liked it being a guy because I knew the person next to me, we could, as long as I expect to hold you the same standard, we got the same pay. So yeah. And you know, the numbers were turning around when I went to pharmacy school and it's still to this day, the majority of people going through pharmacy pharmacy school are women. Usually yep. 60 to two thirds of the population in any class are women. And yet when I started digging into the data, particularly for this fall update, I was disturbed to learn that back in the day in 1970, um, a woman made 66 cents for every dollar a man made in pharmacy. In 2013, That's we closed that gap. So we were super close. So it was 92 cents. And okay. so now in 2018, we're actually reversing. We're widening the pay gap there. And I'm not going to say exactly what, what that statistic is, but we're heading in the wrong direction. Hmm. So for me, like tracking all this information, I just find it fascinating that the majority of women are going into pharmacy and have been since the mid-1980s. I think the official switchover for the majority was around 1985. Women are half of our U.S. population and world population. They're 74% of the U.S. healthcare workforce, and Whoa. they make between 60 and 95% of the decisions in their families about healthcare. And yet when That's you, yeah, it is the majority. <laughs> you think about it, it's a $3.5 trillion business. It's hmm. almost 18% of our GDP now with our healthcare expenditure, yeah, right? For better or worse, I guess, but yeah. So women are controlling the purse strings, but then if, if I had to explain to aliens that landed on this planet <laughs> why all of the organizations had men at the home, they wouldn't even think we had two genders on this planet because it's very, very male heavy. For sure. Yeah. Now, there are some bright spots, and I go into that in the report, and we can get into that here in a minute. But I would say overall, since you know the five years or so that I've been tracking this data, we're not moving in the right direction. And I argue in many instances, we're actually worse. And pay parity is one of those arenas. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. And I mean, you kind of said in the lead up what made you want to research this topic, which is, I, I think, more than applaudable, because I think that's a great reason to look at it. And obviously, being a woman, you have some personal benefit in this, too. Uh, but what factors did you kind of found that played into this at all? Did you, were there anything that really stuck out to you with women versus men or why there was a difference? Well, I think there's it, it, that's a really good question with a multiplicity of answers. So I oh, yeah. think, first and foremost, women are often their own worst enemies, meaning that 
women have maybe different priorities. Some women might put their family first and be the you know primary caregiver to their families. Um, I think in my generation, for example, with Gen X, we're called the sandwich generation because right now we're taking care of our elderly parents and we're taking care of our kids. Yeah. Um, in terms of other let's say old school mentalities that still, you know, we like to talk a good game that they're out of the workplace, but they're not really things mm -hmm. like unconscious bias. We all have our own unconscious biases that we bring to the table for good or not good for gender parity or not. And just being conscious of those, I think is a good step in the right direction to get women, um, into those positions. There's even conscious bias. I mean, there is a great book. It's called So Ordered, Making Partner the Hard Way. And it's about a woman. Her name is Anne Hopkins. And Anne is actually an accountant. And she, in this story, talks about how she was up for partner several times. And, you know, being a partner in an accounting firm is kind of the holy grail, much like law firms. Yeah. And she was, you know, consistently knocking it out of the park. She was bringing in the business and lo and behold, she was never made partner. So she actually left the firm, sued the firm, got the courts to agree with her. And I think she actually ended up back at the same firm as a partner several <laughs> years later, which is ironic, right? But like, why did yeah, she that's... even have to go there, right? Like if she was number one partner bringing in or associate bringing in the business consistently, you know, blowing it out of the park versus her colleagues. Why did her gender hold her back from being made partner? Why should gender even be a factor in that? And yet it really must have been because that was the only thing that was holding her back from making partner. And I think that's very analogous to pharmacy too. And that um, sometimes if you're really doing a great job and you're dedicated to the organization, but something is holding you back from being promoted. If it's your gender, that's a problem, right? Yeah. And you know, it's funny you talked about that because I'm thinking back on my pharmacy career, which I've been a pharmacist for 10 years, so not the longest, but I've only ever worked for male district manager managers and even higher up the food chain up until Again, the C-suite, when I think of everyone who's involved, and I can't say this is 100%, I can only think of one or two women who were either directly above me in the chain of command. There were some offshoots, like there were some, whether it be asset protection, or you know, there was people who were looking on this end of it, but no one was actually like directly in charge of me. And that's pretty interesting you touched on that, because you said women like tend to have, obviously, split their hours sometimes to be like the caregivers of the family. You mentioned the sandwich generation with the Generation X. And I think that's pretty funny because I have I've only had I think on my direct reports the people I directly report to were all men and I've been a pharmacy manager now for almost a decade. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Like one thing you just mentioned actually has a label. It's called stereotype threat, and that's when you're the one kind of token woman, and there's actually increased stress associated with that to perform or overperform because you're the only woman, and sometimes that leads to underperformance. So what happens is they'll promote one woman, she'll be completely consumed and stressed out with trying to overperform or to perform at parity, she ends up underperforming, and then 
everybody else has the excuse, well, this, you know, token woman that we had in this position clearly didn't perform. So why would we hire more women to perform? That's actually called stereotype threat. So when we have one woman in the C-suite, we actually are putting her at peril for that reason. We need to have more than one woman at the helm. Um, even in Barack Obama's uh, cabinet, let, let's talk about this situation. Um, there was an article that I, I read about how he would have women in his cabinet almost conspire to repeat great ideas amongst the women in his cabinet so they were heard. Hmm. And, and that's funny because he's probably the most progressive president we've had in, in some time. Absolutely. Obviously. And he, he got more women at helms of organizations within the federal government than pretty much many presidents, if not all presidents in the past. And yet, even in his own cabinet, the women had to keep reiterating their points in order to be heard. So we're dealing with a lot more subtlety here than, you know, what poor Ann Hopkins faced with blatant discrimination. It's much more subtle and passive aggressive. And so I think we as both men and women and leaders within our profession need to recognize all of these issues and then face them head on. Because if we keep ignoring them or just saying, you know, oh, we have one token woman at the top and, you know, and letting that go, you're actually setting her up for potential failure. You know, and you mentioned that and it's it's crazy, too, because everything you said is true. I've always worked with majority women pharmacists. I've been like the token guy in the pharmacy at times. But all the managers being men, it's kind of a weird dynamic that you're missing out on exactly said the women of it. How would how do we help? create a more equal playing field, if you will, for something like this? Yeah. So one of my favorite um, things where men and women can get involved is sponsorship. And so the idea of mentorship, I think we all kind of have a good construct for, meaning that you're going to you know, have one or many leaders in your field who are maybe 10 to 20 years ahead of you, who are kind of your wise sages that you go to to bounce advice off of. They may or may not be in your organization, but they're just people that you admire that are doing cool stuff. Sponsors, on the other hand, are these leaders in organizations where, in fact, they are in the same organization as their sponsoree, and they fight for the sponsoree when he or she is not in the room. Meaning, when there's any kind of progression discussions or promotion discussions or cool project discussions, your sponsor, who lies within the organization, is your champion and helps you get to a higher level within your organization. Now, where men and women are about the same is in terms of finding mentors. Most men and women are both really great at that. Where women suffer because they don't either put the time or the thought into it or just have those champions or even access to those champions of leaders within organizations is sponsorship. Women don't have sponsors to the level that men do. And when you're having those, you know, progression discussions, career discussions, succession planning discussions, and you don't have a sponsor in the room, guess what? You're going to be left out of the conversation. So men and women both need to step up who are leaders within 
particularly large organizations, and identify people that they are going to, or willing to sponsor. Now, the really interesting thing about mentorship is that the mentee usually identifies the mentor. What I've been told around sponsorship relatively recently, and I never really thought about it until this person said it, was sponsors identify who they're going to sponsor. It's not the sponsoree going out and looking for sponsors. So that's a really interesting dynamic. I actually challenged a leadership uh, professor that I was in a a course for recently about that, who was male, and I, I asked him point blank, Women are great at find, finding mentors. They're not so great at getting sponsors. So explain to our audience how women can get more sponsors. And he's like, well, you know, we can take that offline. That's not really about leadership. And I'm thinking in the back of my head, absolutely, it's <laughs> about leadership, dude. So he and I talked in the hall afterwards. And he's like, you know what? It's not really talked about, but it's really succession planning. And I'm like, that's great. But like, we need to get the moose on the table and teach women how to go and effectively get sponsors. And he's like, well, you know, on the men's side, they don't really talk about it. They just, they find each other. And I'm like, well, it can't just be smoke and mirrors here. So because more men are in those leadership positions, men really need to step up, I think, as leaders, especially if they're looking for succession planning for their organizations. And by the way, having more women at the tops of their organizations are going to make them more profitable and successful. I was but, just going to say yeah, that but, is a known fact. So yeah. they absolutely need to reach out and start identifying men and women to sponsor in the future. Yeah. And, you know, I think some of it, it might be that unconscious bias you're talking about, right? Just because who you tend to affiliate with for whatever reason. So I, that's interesting that you said that. And it, I'm not going to say you completely flip my mindset on this, but you, you change the way I look at it a little bit here with, you're right, men, mentees definitely pick their mentors and start modeling after them. And that's their, you know, the behavior. But it's really hard when you're talking about the opposite way around, because just naturally with things I have in common, it's going to be more with men right away because we've had similar life experiences where it can make it a little harder if I was, and I'm not in a position of this, but if I was in a position to take on a sponsor uh, who's a woman, it's automatically a little bit harder because I don't have that same, I didn't have the same obstacles necessarily. Does that make sense? Yeah, there's that, but there's also me too. We're in the era of me too, where, you know, men, some men, if they're left alone to their own devices, uh, shenanigans occur. And I think, Men are a little scared of that right now. And I think rightfully justified in a lot of instances. But I still think there's ways around that. You can manage that. If you're really, truly, you know, invested in succession planning and really want to get more women and diversity at the helms of organizations, you can work around that. You know, I'm, I always say this before, I I lean a little bit right on the political spectrum, not very far, but the Me Too movement has been like the greatest thing because not just for women, but just getting people who are bad people out of power. I don't care if it's in business or in politics or wherever it is. It's just good in general. And when it comes to pharmacy, obviously you have men who are in charge of women. If this were to come to light more than good, get them out of there. We don't need them because we're, we're a profession that needs to be a profession, not whatever the hell you want to call that. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Uh, so just before I forget, we mentioned it a couple times here. You did a study on this exact topic. What's the name of it and where can people find it? Sure. So the the name of the report, and I usually update it once or twice every year, but the most recent edition was just posted October 
first, just in time for pharmacists um, month to close out. But the title of the report is called Who's at the Helm of Healthcare? A Gender Checkup on C-Suites. And you can find it over at my website, erinalbert.com, or I have it in my digital store at PayHip. Um, so I'll make sure that I share the, the actual link with your listeners for this podcast episode, Eric, and then we can uh, get it listed in the show notes for them. For sure. Uh, yeah. And, you know, I love talking about this topic. I've talked at several different meetings in pharmacy about the gender gap when it comes to leadership in C-suites, in pharma, in pharmacy organizations, in healthcare organizations, and health system organizations. So I'm always happy to um, talk about this topic because I think it's not going to go away on its own. It's something that I know I don't want to wait as a woman 208 years to achieve pay parity. That's ridiculous. And that's yeah, and just one of the statistics out there that are very harrowing about gender balance or imbalance when it comes to leadership. And I think rightfully so, especially in a field like healthcare, which should be above the the gamesmanship of the pay scale, especially when it comes to service provided. Now, if someone's providing more service as a physician, they're getting paid more. That's one thing. But in pharmacy, where unfortunately we're not always paid for our services and we're paid for our time currently, we should be at a point where we're paid equal equal amounts for equal time worked. So I think you nailed that in the head with that. Kind of moving into a couple of questions here I ask everybody on each podcast, or at least try to. If you could change one thing about pharmacy overall, what would you change? Yeah, I love this question. And I, I told you I was struggling with it a little bit this afternoon when you asked me. Um, I think I would just want to see pharmacy get out of its own way <laughs> a little bit more. <laughs> like we love to talk to ourselves all the time about all of our issues and concerns where we kind of fall down is this whole realm of advocacy. And I'm so glad you have your podcast because pharmacists are not taught that if you're signing up for a profession, i.e. pharmacy, part of the deal is you have to advocate for the profession. But if we yep. don't teach pharmacy students how to do that, how to advocate, then they're kind of lost. So one thing when I taught pharmacy law at Butler University was we had a lecture on advocacy because I think it's really important to be a cheerleader for your organization or your profession. And there's a certain way that you have to go about that. And it doesn't stop the day that you graduate from pharmacy school. I think a lot of our problems as a profession right now are due to the fact that we don't advocate for ourselves. We're kind of that wallflower waiting at the dance to get asked to dance of the healthcare professions. That and we is need the to best stop that. I've ever heard. We absolutely need to stop that. We need to be aggressive and and go ask somebody. Go ask somebody to dance, you know? So meaning Go to meetings where maybe you're the only pharmacist and talk about how great pharmacy is and all the wonderful services that we can provide. Go to places where you're an N of one. And I love that idea. Like for me, when I'm planning ahead for 2020, one of the things that I'm going to strike, a deal that I'm going to strike with myself is I'm going to go to at least two or three conferences that have nothing to do whatsoever with pharmacy. 
because I want to be the only pharmacist in the room and I want to talk about all the awesome things that pharmacy does. And if we keep going to the same meetings and we keep talking to ourselves all the time, it's like talking to a wall. We all know what benefits we can bring to the table. But if we don't start talking about all these great things outside of our profession, we're going to be in deeper doo-doo than we are right now. Yeah. And you know, it's funny about that. So um, I've mentioned him a few times on podcasts, but here in Ohio, Dave Burke is a senator for the state of Ohio. He's the only pharmacist we have who's a legislator. But if anything comes up pharmacy related and really even healthcare, since he heads the healthcare committee in Ohio, it goes through him. And because he's the pharmacist, he's the one that a lot of people look to because he knows the business. He's the professional. And I'm not going to say it's what he says goes, but he's got enough reputation in the field that it's got to go through him for lack of a better word. Yeah. Well, what advocacy training did he have? I mean, we have two. We have a senator. (laughs) We have a senator and a, a rep over here in Indiana that are pharmacists. You know, thank the good Lord we have two. But yeah, it's very much like that as well. Like all the, you know, token pharmacy issues end up going to those two pharmacists. And maybe that means we need to train more pharmacists to run for office. One of the training sessions that I went to that's still one of my favorite to this day is the Women's Campaign School at Yale University. It was bipartisan. It wasn't one party or another. And it was all about how to run for office. And I think we need more of that in pharmacy. Yeah, and I mean, you can look at just the U.S. House representative, since it's a big national body, and see that there's there's much more women now, but there's only one pharmacist too. So, and you know, right there, if we had a female pharmacist, we'd double amount of pharmacist, and there'd be, actually be a woman to represent the profession that is majority women at this point. Yeah, absolutely, and or you know, the fact that pharmacy is is a profession, and a lot of you know, like even courts love to have pharmacist jurors. Because we have so much knowledge about drugs, right? Oh, I actually had to sit on a murder trial and I was, they found out I was a pharmacist and there's drugs involved and they were literally like, we're keeping him because of that. And oh, like, yeah, oh. totally, totally. I get it. And, you know, all, all I have to do is say I'm a lawyer and that usually gets me dismissed but because <laughs> they don't like lawyers on Wadir and, and jury selection. But, um, I, you know, I just think that any profession you are – part of the political wheel and for love or hate hatred of our political system the worst thing that we can do as a profession is ignore it and hope it goes away because that's that's the trouble and that's the quandary that we've gotten ourselves into now let's be honest thousands of pharmacists are getting laid off Uh, we've got you know pbms and dir fees and clawbacks and all of these issues where our value is being stripped literally out of the system. So we need to get back to our roots and start talking about our features and benefits and unique proposition within the healthcare space or we're doomed. I hope if there's one thing people got from this podcast, it's to speak up, whether you're woman, male, what have you, whether it's about your pay or your profession, I hope they understand from you, Aaron, they need to speak up. Yeah, absolutely. Speak up and, you know, quit being that you know, wallflower. <laughs> if you hide out in the basement of the hospital pharmacy for the rest of your career and think <laughs> you're like gripping your, your paycheck stubs from week to week, if you think that's going to be there forever and if you don't get out and start talking to your lawmakers about what the features and benefits of being a pharmacist are and the benefit that we bring to the healthcare system, 
guess what? Your job's going the way of the dodo too. And we're all going to be replaced with vending machines. I know I didn't sign up for that when I went to pharmacy school. And I'm sure that all the pharmacy students that I'm teaching at Butler today don't or didn't sign up for that either six years ago when they signed up to be pharmacy students and majors yeah, as well. I, I, that, that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother five episodes of why we aren't vending machines. But I'll, with that, I'm going to divert to my last question for you here. Uh, if you could change one pharmacy law, federal or state, what would you change? And I, I think as a lawyer and a pharmacist, you're going to have an interesting take here. This is a really hard question. Um, I would say this is probably going to be controversial too. I Go for it. I would probably make marijuana not a C1 anymore under the Controlled Substances Act at the federal level. I, uh, I would agree <laughs> with you on that. I don't, I don't even think it's that controversial as we're seeing states do it. I know Ohio has it, Michigan has it, obviously Colorado, Washington, and so on have it as a uh, as legal, at least for medical, if not other recreational. So There's I, uh, a lot of debate on that still. I think there are features and benefits and arguments both ways. Yes. But I think the the what do I want to call myself, a uh, fiscal um, entrepreneurial champion in me, I think, um, and the tax revenue on top of the clinical benefits that I've heard and seen from patients and friends who are in jurisdictions where it has been legalized at the state level. I just think it's time to, uh, at the federal level, join reality. Yeah. If nothing else, take a, a really hard look at it and, you know, consider it at least. Don't don't be so closed-minded, if you will. Yes. So with that, um, also I want to make sure to drop a plug for you here. You also have your own podcast called The Edutainer, which can be found on Apple or virtually any podcast platform, if I'm correct on that. Yes. I just changed the name. I went to a conference called She Podcasts for the first time ever in Atlanta, Georgia this fall. And one thing they told us is we have to, you know, have a brand identity and... Before, it was called the Dr. Aaron L. Albert Show. Super boring title. So <laughs> I love the, the juxtaposition of education and entertainment. So that's how I came up with that name. Well, and, and good education should be entertaining. I mean, Nat Geo made a whole brand off that. Yep. I couldn't <laughs> agree more. Don't be boring when you're teaching. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. And that, that goes for pharmacists, too, when you're talking to your patients. Absolutely. Uh, Hey, so with that, um, if listeners, if you guys enjoy the show, please drop a rating uh, on Apple Podcasts or follow the uh, Aaron at The Edutainer on there as well or whatever platform you're listening on. Uh, thank you for listening to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, your prescription for pharmacy and politics. 